to go on a journey with me. Imagine that you and a group of your American friends were teleported to the city of peace. Now, the city of peace happens to be in the country of Israel, and it's known as their capital city. It's the city of Jerusalem. Now, you arrive there in the early morning hours, so early that it's still dark outside. And as you and your friends are meandering through the streets, you recognize that there are far more people in the streets than what you would have presumed there would be at this time. And as you kind of begin to ask around to one another, one of your friends points out that this happens to be the Passover celebration. And the Passover celebration happens on the 15th of Nisan, the first month of the year for the Jews. And as you begin to kind of calculate with your friends in the Gregorian calendar, you realize that you are among a people dressed differently than you. And it happens to be the date of April 3rd of A.D. 33. April 3rd of A.D. 33, and there are thousands of more Jews meandering through the city than what would accustom at that time because of the Passover celebration. Now, you know that the Passover celebration is important to the Jews, but as you kind of dialogue with your friends, one of them explains to you that the Jewish Passover is a celebration from from their time in Egypt when God liberated them after 400 years of bondage by bringing about a guy named Moses who went to the Pharaoh at the time and said, let my people go. And through a series of plagues, it brought about the last one in which the firstborn child throughout the land would die unless there was a Passover lamb, a lamb that was slain and its blood was applied to the lintels and the doorposts of their homes. And if that was the case, then the angel of death would pass by. And every year, every year since, the people of Israel celebrated this incredible feast. It kicked off the inauguration of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this day was a commemoration, a celebration of all that God had done hundreds of years earlier. Now, as you and your friends make your way through the city of peace, you find yourself on the western side of the city. It is there that in the distance you hear a rooster crow. And you look back towards the east and you see just over the eastern hills, the sun begins to shine. It's just past 6 a.m. And as you walk to the western side of the city, there is something that takes your eye captive. And that something is Herod's palace. It's a very incredible sight, and it's not where Herod always lives, but it is a place where he oftentimes will find himself in Jerusalem. But what's interesting is not that it's merely Herod's palace, but outside of Herod's palace, there seems to be quite a commotion. And not only were you a little bit perplexed that the city streets were already full of people, but you were even more perplexed that as you've walked through the city streets and you find yourself on the western side of the city, there seems to be something on high alert. There are hundreds of soldiers outside of Herod's palace and the praetorium there, the courtyard that you see, and there are hundreds of more other people, Jews, Uh, What you and your friends would come to know as the high priests and the Sadducees and the Pharisees all gather around and they're waiting for a particular person who would come out of Herod's palace, but it wasn't Herod. It was actually the visiting Roman governor at the time. His name was Pontius Pilate. And Pilate was there because Pilate has a handful of things to accomplish as 
the leading man of the time. As a Roman governor, he has a handful of jobs to accomplish, one of which is to make sure there is never civil unrest. And while he is on high alert, because the Jews who already have been at odds with him would love to see the city in turmoil. Matter of fact, Pilate had several jobs, and one of those was trying to keep the Jewish people happy. The problem is, is that him and the Jewish people, along with the Samaritans, have already had several run-ins. And they do not care for Pilate, and they don't care for his leadership. And because of that, Pilate is trying to do everything he can to keep peace in the city of peace. Although, as you and your friends gather outside of the praetorium at Herod's palace, you know that tensions are rising. You can feel it. And not only do you feel the tensions rising, you begin to feel that the crowds are in some ways even encroaching upon your hula hoop space. You feel the tension. And it's worse than a first Monday on a really good weekend. And not only do you feel the tension, you see this man who is in charge of civil rest approach the courtyard. Now, one of the reasons there are hundreds of soldiers there is because they also are at his beck and call. Whatever he says goes because he's also the leader, not only of making sure there is civil diplomacy, but he also is there to lead the Roman army. He collects taxes, and on this particular day, he's going to sit on the judgment seat. And he has two people in which he's going to judge, and he's going to offer even before the Jewish people. And you and your friends, you watch on on the western side of the city as all of this goes down. And he has two people in which as he approaches the large stone steps that have been hewn by man and stacked together, he says, hear ye, hear ye. Jews, today as a custom, every time this year, I will release to you one prisoner. Now the thing that you have to know about Pilate is he was a fickle man. He was fickle because he was always in some ways waiting for the wind of his political climate. At odds with several different groups of people, he had a person ahead of him in Rome that if he didn't keep everybody happy, he knew he would easily lose his spot as a Roman governor in the province of Judea. And so he's trying to play the climate well, and he actually believes that he has one man before him that that day is a righteous man, a righteous man in whom he knows that nothing has gone wrong. Now, your friends don't know it at the time, but later you discover that the righteous man he has before him that he is suspected to potentially release or let go has already been through a multitude of trials. Matter of fact, overnight, this righteous man went through six different trials and Annas didn't find him guilty, Caiaphas didn't find him guilty, Herod uh, uh, or Pilate had not found him guilty. All of these different things had not found him guilty. And yet here it is, He is one of the men that could potentially be released. And his name was Jesus the Christ. But before you, you notice another man, a man who doesn't appear to you to be righteous, but actually in some ways appears to you to be an arrogant man. And you can in some ways see that even in his countenance, he's a man who looks to be guilty. His name, though, happens to be similar to the first man's name because his name is Jesus Barabbas. Bar, which means son, 
Abbas of a father. He was the son of a father, and he's put up against another guy, Jesus the Christ, who's also the son of the father. A stark difference. But this day, as Pilate seeks to release one of these criminals, he hopes that the Jews will take his political scheme. He thinks, if I give them a righteous man, surely they'll let him go, and they'll take this criminal, Barabbas, and they'll crucify him. Matter of fact, there have been three crosses already made outside of the city on the hill of Golgotha for three thieves, for three thugs. And the son of a father, the guy Barabbas, well, he was an insurrectionist. He was a criminal. He was a thief. He was actually a murderer. He was one of those guys who had actually attempted to overthrow people in Rome as an insurrectionist, as a rebel. He was a bandit. And as a result of that, he was at odds with Pilate and the Romans. And he certainly deserved to go to the cross that day to be one of three victims at the hands of Rome. But as as Pilate made his announcement in front of the Jews and in front of the high priest, you notice that there is a group of people, the scribes and the high priest and several other elders that are going through the crowd, and one of them whispers in your ear, hey, when they they bring about the Christ, say crucify him, and you see they go throughout the crowds and they are convincing people to murder The righteous one. So when Pilate asked the question, who do you want me to give you this day? They begin to say, give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. Crucify Jesus. Now here's the challenge. Pilate knew that Jesus was a righteous man. And even as you were looking on, what's interesting and strikes you as odd is a Roman soldier walks up to to Pilate and whispers in his ear. And as he whispers in his ear, it's interesting because you see the countenance on his face change. And you know something's wrong. When all of a sudden, this soldier then summons a woman who comes out into the courtyard. And this woman is beautiful in stature, and you don't know who she is, but you would later discover with your friends that this was Pilate's wife. And what she whispered in Pilate's ears troubled him greatly because she had had a dream that day of the Christ and his righteousness. And she whispered in her husband's ear, do not dare crucify the righteous one. For I have had a dream today that has troubled me greatly. And yet because he was a fickle man, he asked the question one more time. Who would you like me to release to you this day? Would you like me to release to you this criminal, this insurrectionist, this murderer, the guy who certainly should should go to the cross? Or would you all like me to release Jesus the Christ in which they begin to violently shout, crucify Jesus the Christ, crucify him, crucify him, in which tensions have now risen not only in your heart, but in the hearts of every single one. And the reason you have such tensions is because there is no way for you to escape. There's no way that you can get out. You are trapped. And in this moment, there is a feeling of injustice in your heart because you know that there is one who you look on and he is righteous. And there's another in whom you look on and he looks like a convict, a murderer, and a thief. And all of a sudden, Pilate turns to one of his lead centurions who walks over and unchains the criminal and sets him free. And Barabbas walks down these large, hewn, man-made steps down amongst the crowd. And it's as if he boastfully says, though he doesn't say anything, look at me. And then Pilate does something that strikes you as odd. 
he washes his hands in a basin and says, My, may it be known to you today that this man's blood is on your hands. And then the Jews begin to shout, may his blood be on our hands and on the hands of our children. And in arrogance, they begin to shout with anger in their hearts, a rage in which you've never witnessed before. Crucify him! Crucify him! Crucify him! And it just meanders through the crowd in ways, and in some ways it shakes you to the core. And then they take Jesus and they scourge him and they beat him naked and they lead him that morning to Calvary's cross. And all of this happens in the city of peace. But in your heart and in the heart of your friends, it feels as if all peace is missing. And then all of a sudden, you wake up. And you're like, oh man, that was, that was a nightmare. It was terrible. It was terrible. And then you come to the realization that there was injustice done. The injustice was that there was a man named Barabbas, the son of a father who was indeed guilty. He, by historical accounts, was an insurrectionist, a murderer, and he deserved to be hung on a cross. But here's what's interesting is that when you wake up to this nightmare, you do realize that it wasn't indeed a nightmare. It was a, it was a true story. And indeed, he did go free. And indeed, there was a righteous man named Jesus the Christ who actually went to Calvary's tree. And in all the injustice you might sense, it's simply because you know that it's wrong, even in our American courts, for a man who's not had due prudence and justice done in an American court to be charged as guilty if he was innocent. Even you know that in the day we live in, if somebody were to say something that was not true, that it could hold up in court very quickly, right? It's a scary day and time, and that's exactly what happened on Nissan, the 15th, April 3rd of AD 33. And why this is so important is because if you feel any sense of injustice, and you should, you have to come to the realization that Jesus the Christ, the righteous one who had done no wrong, went and was hung in the middle of thieves that day. But as you look upon Barabbas and the thieves, you also come to the striking realization that you too are like the one who was set free, though a criminal. Matter of fact, our hearts are darkened. The prophet Jeremiah, hundreds of years before Jesus, the Christ ever came on the scene, says that our hearts are deceitful, that they're desperately sick. He asked the question, who can understand it? Paul, the apostle, actually said that we are dead in our trespasses and our sins. Uh, He actually says that you and I are actually enemies of God, that we too are children of disobedience. And I know we don't look at ourselves and think of ourselves as insurrectionists, but friends, honestly, don't we hate authority in our life? All types of authority, right? Like we don't want teachers or coaches or policemen telling us what to do. Uh, Why in the world do we actually need a speed limit sign? Because can't we just control that ourselves? But the problem is, is that for every ounce of accountability in our life, it just reminds us of the truth that Paul said in Romans chapter 3, that we've all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. Matter of fact, when we look at Barabbas and we think about this convict going free, I look at my heart and I think about all the ways that I have murdered people in my heart. 
I've thought about all of my anxious thoughts. I've thought about all the times that I've thought things in my head that if you knew what was going on in my head, you wouldn't even let me be up here on this stage. And maybe you can relate. But see, we are in that story. And friends, it's not just us as a group of American friends who have been teleported to the early days of Jesus Christ, but it was actually us in the story because we reflect a character in there, and that character we most reflect is a guy named Barabbas. But here's the good news, that though the wages of sin is death, that because our hearts are darkened and because we are sinners indeed, the good news is, is that Paul also wrote to the church of Rome and he said this, but God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while you were a sinner, while you were a murderer, an insurrectionist, a thief, a liar, a thug, Christ, the righteous one, died for you. And friends, that's really what Easter is about. It's an opportunity to look at a contrasting view of the sinfulness of man and the righteousness of God. And here's what you need to know. But because God is rich in mercy, no matter what you've done, where you've been, or what's been done to you, there's a God in heaven who loves you. And he cares so much for you. And he was willing to make a great exchange for you. And the great exchange is simply found in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And I want to just put it for you up on the screen so you can kind of read along with me as I recite this to you. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it simply says these words, that God made him who knew no sin. That's the Christ, the righteous one, the one who was put in the criminal's place. He made him who knew no sin become sin on whose behalf? Our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, let me ask you a real quick question. Has anybody in this room you've ever sinned? Just raise your hand. Now, there's some of you who didn't raise your hand, and you just sinned right there because you lied in front of all of us, right? (laughs) We're all sinners, and yet in our sin, God made him who knew no sin to Christ, the one who even Pilate recognized as innocent, to die in the place of you, and me, and even a filthy criminal like Barabbas. And that's the good news of Easter. And maybe you're here today and you go, that is indeed good news. But I struggle to relate. Well, I have a friend whose name is Nathan. And many years ago, Nathan came to the place in his life where he too realized that he was a criminal. That he was in many ways lost and without hope. Uh, that he was an alien in some ways out of this world, that he was an orphan without a family, that he was a stranger. In some ways, he felt lost and abandoned. And there was a place and time where Nathan began to realize that I'm the president of my life. I rule everything about it. But he realized, too, that he was driving his own life into a ditch. And then he said and he acknowledged that not only was he a sinner, but he was ready to move from presidential to residential, to let someone else take control of the will. And as he did that, Nathan discovered a hope that he would love to share. And I could tell you all of Nathan's story, but it wouldn't do it justice. And so I want Nathan to share his story himself. And so if y'all will just turn your eyes uh, to the screen, hear from my friend Nathan. So growing up, things got crazy early on in life. My parents divorcing and different things. 
uh, started drinking early and rebelling and um, I was just kind of running amok, doing my own thing, getting out of school. I started work and I still, I just lived my own life for myself, seeking after my own pleasures and fulfillments and, um, and never even considered God or anything like that. Uh, everything I did, everything I chased after, it, it left me empty and always looking for something else, another another high, another um, pleasure, whatever it was, uh, never satisfied. Wasn't until years later that after God sobered me up uh, back in January of 2001 that I was starting to be able to see clearly. He put people in my life and moved me around so that um, I could ask the questions that I needed to ask and people could ask me questions that they needed to ask. Up to that point, I kind of, um, you know, I didn't even really think I was a Christian, but um, if I was asked if I was a Christian, I would just kind of say, I guess, because my family was Christian. So I just kind of thought I was, you know, and um, but I was convicted by the Holy Spirit that I wasn't, and God pursued me many different ways, and uh, finally one night at the rodeo arena uh, is when I gave my life to Jesus. I trusted Him as my Lord and Savior. One thing that happened was I went home and nothing happened. And I spent some time just knowing there had to be more until somebody finally approached me and asked me about learning to read the Bible and study the Bible. And, uh, and that's where I began to grow my faith. And uh, so over the years, there was different groups that I was a part of where we discipled each other. And uh, I served in a church or two and different ministries and uh, ended up at uh, Stone Point and I was drawn to Stone Point uh, for their ministry work and discipleship. Now I'm in a journey group with men and uh, it's uh, my first journey group. So, you know, it, it's good. It's a good start and um, we will be discipling each other and uh, sharpening one another. And my life before Christ deserved a, a death penalty. Even the sins I commit since I became a Christian. But, but, um, Jesus came and lived and died to take my place. Uh, and he took that death that I deserved and I was set free. And um, it, was, it was as though I never did it, but I did. So um, there's no penalty due now for me, but Jesus took it on, every bit of it. So.
for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God so now Jesus took all my sin and when God looks at me he sees his son Jesus his righteousness when when, uh, when Jesus was pursuing me there was many times when I, I wanted to raise my hand at altar calls and I wanted to give my life to Jesus but I was scared and I didn't do it and it took it took a long time for me to finally surrender to Jesus but I did and you can do that today yourself all you have to do is pray and ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior and confess your sin and repent from your sin and uh, you will be saved believe in your heart that Jesus is the Son of God and you will be saved So as Nathan shares just his story, there's something that really stood out to me. He said, there was a day where I realized that I was hopeless. And he said, and it was there in a rodeo arena that I gave my life to Jesus. Now, what's so incredible about that is he said, there was a day in which I knew that I needed something different. Now, go back real quickly with me to the city of peace. What do you think the narrative would have looked like if Barabbas, when he was set free, if he just merely turned back. Like if he just would have just dropped down and said, hey, thank you, Jesus the Christ, for I should be in your place, and yet you took mine. But that didn't happen in the narrative. There's a great chance that he goes, hey, look at me. Hey, look at me. And I, friends, I'll tell you, I think that's happening to many Americans. Hey, look at me. And I get it. You believe in God. Listen, even the demons believe in God. The difference is recognizing there's a place in which you look back and you realize, I'm guilty. I'm a criminal. I'm a sinner. I deserve death. I deserve separation. I deserve condemnation. I deserve all of the wrath of God that he could put on me. The scriptures would say we deserve death. And yet it is that God gave us an opportunity to have life. And and the deal is, is Nathan goes, all you got to do is acknowledge him. Acknowledge that he took your place. Acknowledge that he, the righteous one, stood on your behalf. And merely believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that he is Lord. Friends, it literally is saying, Lord, thank you. Like right in your seats, if you've never trusted in Christ, this is what it looks like. This is genuinely what it is. Lord, thank you that while I'm yet a sinner, you sent the righteous one to die in my place. My life looks a little different than Barabbas. But in a lot of ways, there's similarities because I know that what's gone in my heart, the things I've done, the things I'm embarrassed to share, even the things that have done to me that I would never dare tell anyone that you knew and you still love me. So today, Lord, I just acknowledge that I'm in need of you. And Lord, I'm asking that for the first time in my life that you would see my humility, 
And I would just lay my life down before you. Lord, I've, I'm not in control. I think I am, but I realize I'm not. And so Lord, today I lay myself down. Would you come into my life? Would you forgive me of sin? Would you be Lord? Would you be King? Would you rule my heart? Would you take my sin and would you cast it as far as the east is to the west? Lord, would you remember my sin no more? Not because you don't remember anything, because you remember all things, but that you choose not to use it against me. And so Lord, you, the righteous judge, would you be supreme in my life? See, friends, the thing is, is Pilate thought he was the righteous judge. But Pilate was no good at being a judge. He was a people pleaser. He was fickle. He was a sinner himself. And he had an opportunity right before his eyes that if he was a wise man, he would ask the Christ far more questions. And if he were to listen to his wife, ladies, it's a good chance to nod your husband right here. Like, if he had listened to his wife, he would have known indeed he was a righteous man. Now, let me ask you a question. How much was God pursuing his wife if he would appear to her in a dream? Friends, in this moment, how much is God pursuing you? Because you don't have to see it in a dream. You can hear it right now from a faithful man to say, hey, listen, God loves you and he wants all of you. Today's your day. I would presume to believe there's three different types of people in this room. There's some of us in here who we've been walking with the Lord for a long time. And in the next few moments as we spend together, I'm gonna ask you, if you're a faithful saint walking close to the Lord, that you would pray for brothers and sisters across the room. They're near you. I presume there's person number two who you have given your life to Christ, but really your honest prayer should be, Lord, would you return to me the joy of your salvation? Slowly over time, you've drifted from him, you've drifted from his church, you've drifted from just a kingdom mindset. And listen, I know you love, the God, the love God. I know you love the Lord. There's no question there. But you would acknowledge in your heart that, that he's not on the throne of your life all the time. And this is a great morning. I can't think of a better morning to confess that to God and ask him to resurrect your heart and to return to you the joy of his salvation. And then there's others of in this room that you know that you're more like Barabbas than you'd like to admit. And today is the time to throw off your chains and to walk in a new life in Christ. And the way you do that is simply say, Lord, I'm giving you control. And so the next few minutes, right where you sit, I'm gonna ask that you would just spend some time in prayer with God. If you're a faithful saint, pray for others. If you need God to resurrect your heart, ask him to do that. If you need to have him return the joy of your salvation, ask him to do that. But spend a couple of moments, just you and the Lord, as if no one else is in this room. It's not no longer you and a group of your American friends. It's you and a holy God who loves you and is pursuing you in this moment. Just ask him for your help and then we'll close our time together.
with all heads bowed and all eyes closed, I've got two questions. One, if you're in the room just this morning and you would just say, hey, Brandon, I, I have walked away from my love of the Lord and in some ways I'm not where I should have been, but today I just ask God to return to me the joy of his salvation. I, I wanna be on fire for him. I've drifted, but I'm coming back. Hey, if that's you, would you just raise your hand across the room? Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Now there's others in you this room that that for the first time in your life, like just a, so, a second ago, you just said, Lord, would you forgive me of sin? Would you come into my life? Would you forgive me, a criminal like Barabbas? And would you make me new? Would you give me a new life in Christ? Friends, if that's you, for the very first time in your life, you just prayed to receive Christ as your as your father, as your faithful friend, would you raise your hand as well? For the first time you did that. Amen. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. So here's the deal. I'm going to ask you to do something, and it's incredibly bold, okay? And here's why it's bold. It's bold because it's really easy to make commitments to God in anonymity when no one knows. But the true boldness is what Nathan shared. When I realized that day that in fear, I've had opportunities to raise my hand or submit my life to God, and I didn't. But today, friends, you have a chance to say, Lord, I want you to change me. And so whether you prayed to receive Christ or you said, I'm going to live for God from here on, I'm, re I'm asking God to do something. I'm going to ask you on the count of three to stand. And here's why I'm encouraging you to stand, because we love you. This isn't, there's not a safer place in the world to commit your life to following God fully. And more than that, the angels in heaven say that they rejoice when one lost person repents and comes back to God. Man, what an opportunity for us to sing and rejoice to God. And so on the count of three, if you made any decision today at all, I'm just gonna ask in boldness that you would stand in a safe place and tell others what God has done. One, two, three. Would you stand if you made a decision of any kind? Amen, amen. 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 You guys can be seated, but I want you to listen to me real quickly. Friends, if you trusted in Christ in any way, would you do me the honor of just letting me hug your neck in the lobby? And I get it, you're like, you're a big dude, and you're like, oh, dude, I don't hug men. Listen, I don't trust a single man in this place who won't give a hug. You won't hug me? Listen, I got, I got an entourage of my own soldiers that are ready to jump on you, right? Like, look at, look at me. If you've trusted Christ, don't keep that to yourself. And don't be a Barabbas who walks off the hewn steps and doesn't look back. That's foolishness. And I would just encourage you, don't, to be a foolish person. I'd love to be a part of your story. I'd love to be a part of what God's done in your life. And listen, there are team members here who they've made it their life's mission to serve you. And we're not perfect. We don't have it all together. But what we do know is a God who is perfect and who has it all together. And we don't want to say, hey, come look at us. We want to say, hey, come look at him because he's worthy and he's the lamb who was slain. And so today, if you made a decision, I would love for you to introduce yourself to me. doesn't have to be long. doesn't have to be drawn out. I just want to be able to see you. Hug your neck, pray for you, encourage you any way I can. If there's a long line right there in front of me, because there, there might be, hey, I'll point you to somebody else, and we'll be out there to love and encourage you. 
Friends, the angels are rejoicing today, and here's why. Not only has Christ risen from the dead, but today he took some lives who were dead and he made them new. And that, my friends, is worth praising God for. Let's stand and sing together.